I'm very glad to be here. Good to see you all. It's the second week of Advent that we begin this evening. And as many of you know, um, we're doing an Advent campaign. And we are looking at the kingdom partnerships that God has already brought to this church, that God has already knit together. And the Holy Spirit of God connects us more deeply than money that we are raising to give. So let me tell you that you have been giving sacrificially, cheerfully, thank you. That's a work of God in you. And we're grateful for your obedience. We ask you to keep on, keep on. I was really tempted to tell you where we're at and do the little thermometer, but I think y'all just need to keep on and trust and know that we're gonna get there by his good pleasure, Lord willing. So keep giving, rocking and rolling. And as you know, each week of Advent, we're going to look at these partnerships. We're gonna look at these individual, local, regional, international partnerships just to give a highlight, a focus, and an update as to what they're about in the kingdom of God. And so tonight, we're gonna look at our regional uh, slash international focus. It's Ministerio Pescador. So I'm gonna ask Carla Kemper to come on up. I'm gonna introduce you once again to Caesar and Raquel Canones. Let's look at their picture up here. Of course, Carla and her brother Carlos, aw, are, uh, these are their parents. And of course, Jared, I have to give him a shout out because he was pouting because I didn't mention his name when we were going through slides earlier. So Jared, this is for you. I love you. Hooray. Son-in-law, Jared, of course. But I think their grandkids probably get top billing. So uh, Carl, I'm going to give you this microphone and we're going to talk a little bit about Ministerio Pescador. So let's give Carla a hand and a welcome. Bienvenidos. Bienvenida. Olé. So would you tell us a bit about uh, your dad, how he came to faith in Jesus, and how this ministry was born? Okay. Um, well, my dad, um, he was a man that had lived a life of a lot of sin. He had had two marriages that failed because of his sin. He was an addict, he um, was an alcoholic and did drugs. So he destroyed his two families and he met my mother. <laughs> and this is like so crazy because they met at a club. All right. Like on a weekend. All right. And the weekend after, my mom was invited to church for the first time. Wow. So my mom goes to church and she's like, this is it. I'm going to follow Jesus. Mm. And um, my dad, you know, he still wanted to go out with her. So, <laughs> uh, my mom was like, well, the girl you met last weekend is not the girl you're seeing today. So mm. if you still want to go out with me, we're going to church. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to church. <laughs> so, and it's crazy because... He heard, um, you know, about the gospel when he was in Yale once and like many times. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. But he never did. And he had all these addictions. Yet the minute that he was like, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. The next day he was not drinking anymore, not doing drugs anymore. He stopped smoking 
without need of rehab or mm -hmm. anything. Like it just happened. It was like, that's how I know that the Holy Spirit mm. really can change somebody's life mm -hmm. because um, like it just happened. The yeah. next day he was a new man. Mm. And after that, um, he just wanted to serve Jesus. He started reading um, the Gospels, hmm. and he got to that verse in Mark uh, 1, 17 that talks about Jesus calling the disciples and saying, uh, I will make you fishers of men. And he was like, oh, okay, well, I will be a fisher of men. And he will... Um, he will go, like, he'll be like, Oliver, I'm going to go fishing. And what that meant was that <laughs> my mom will make, like, 200 burritos or sandwiches. And he will get in his truck. And it was, like, winter time, And, you know, there's all these homeless people on the streets or drunk people. And he will, like, just drive and then stop and give them something to eat and ask them if he could take them somewhere. Or, like, some of these people were homeless. So he would take them to, like, shelters or... You know, wherever mm -hmm. they could go. And that's how he started fishing. And then, like, if you don't know, Ministerio Pescador means, I mean, like, fishers mm -hmm. of men. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay. <laughs> I, I like that fishing better. I'm not a big fan of the fish fishing. Yeah. So that's very good. I don't think he has ever fished. Like, really oh, man. Even better. Tell you the truth. <laughs> Even better. Hey, so tell us about a typical week uh, in the Ministerio Pescador on El Paso, Juarez, what does it look like? What is he up to week to week? Okay, um, so he always has stuff to do. If you ever visit my parents' house, you should know that you will work <laughs> because he always has stuff going on. But um, in the soup kitchen in Juarez, what they do on Mondays, mm -hmm. they open the place early and they let people come in and it's like cleanup day. If you need to take a shower, shave, change clothes into clean clothes, I always say new clothes, but they are new to them, mm -hmm. you know, their donations. And then if you want to wash your clothes that you were wearing, they let you wash your clothes. And some of these people are going to interviews because they want to get jobs or mm -hmm. whatever, so they have a chance there to get clean up. And then they do that all morning and... After that, they either play a movie or the soccer game mm -hmm. and serve them like a snack. And that's Monday. Mm -hmm. and, and then they serve lunch at mm -hmm. noon from every day, except for Sundays, they serve lunch at noon for everybody. And there's like 70 plus people that mm. come and eat. Every day. Every day, except for Sunday. Mm -hmm. We, and because not a lot of people are hungry on Sunday. I guess not, reason. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, on Sunday, they do have like a little uh, church service. Mm -hmm. And if anybody ever shows up mm -hmm. and they're hungry, they are going to feed them. They sure. will never turn anybody away, even if it's not a time when they're serving food or, good. or you know. It's hard to hear the gospel over your stomach growling, so that's a good thing. Yeah. Praise God. And uh, when they serve the food, they always like do like a couple of worship songs, and then mm -hmm. uh, the gospel is shared with the people that are there to eat. Good, and I so, think, 
And, and I think maybe I mentioned in a, a week or two, he, he takes uh, stuff that they've, uh, a, a big soup or burritos, and they go to an AA meeting once a week. They go to a jail once yeah, a week. Nice. They Tuesday go, and Wednesday. right, and to me, they go where Jesus would go. If he were walking around El Paso, if he were walking around Juarez, what types of folks would Jesus want to go share a meal with and party with? And so that's why I think this is such a great deal. And so as it relates to our Advent campaign, what this church has done for a long time now, for, for several months, maybe even years, is support this food ministry because that's a lot of burritos, right? And that's a lot of soup. And so we've been giving him $400 um, a month uh, to help to that end. And so when we're talking about the Advent campaign, uh, we're, we're talking about beyond just giving of our regular uh, contributions, our regular gifts that we would every month. Above and beyond that is for this campaign and for this mission. And so we thought at the very least, we can up that from $400 a month to $450 a month. And so that brings us to the next point. What is one of the things that your dad and mom have been asking of this church? What have they wanted? They've wanted us to come, right? Yes, yes. Uh, well, um, all of the donations or food that mm -hmm. gets bought with the money that mm -hmm. our church sends to them gets stored at my parents' house. Mm -hmm. And they use their garage for that. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they have so much stuff that they just put it in the backyard mm -hmm. and cover it like with a tarp. Mm -hmm. So they need a storage and they need it bad. And that's like one of the things that we can help with, mm -hmm. like it will be such a blessing. Absolutely. Like their biggest fear is that the city is gonna come and find them because of this stuff they right. have. And because one of the other things they do is, one, is it once a month? Once a month. They give families in need. That's uh, what that is. All of this, that's their groceries and their things that they can give to families who need help, yes. need food. That's like 70 families benefit from this food once a month. That's great. So, so what we're doing is not only just sending our money, but we're capitalizing on this partnership now with our presence because this church has wanted to come and has wanted to be a part in presence with these people. And so I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, but it wasn't on iTunes or it wasn't online. But one of the other blessings in this is uh, we have uh, some money uh, to help toward this shed from the Ken Kanatabi Missions Fund that was raised at his memorial service. And so that is one way we get to go down there. We get to build a shed. We want to go in the spring. We want to do it around spring break. So instead of going to Disneyland, let's all go to El Paso and let's bless these people and let's go serve and be fishers of men ourselves. So that's what we're looking at. And I think that if we go in the spring, we put this shed up, we put a praise God for Ken Kanatabi and his legacy, and we help, have that money help to that end, be an enduring legacy that he, he, he already has left in our hearts. And then um, we look and see, hey, maybe we can go back in the fall. And maybe we can see, based on these needs here, let's drive again, let's see what children are there, let's see what other needs are there, and, and let's make this partnership uh, even take it to the next level. So thank you, Carla, for sharing. Let's see some of these men and women that uh, are being served in this brief little clip here, and then we're going to pray for Ministerio Pescador and get into a message tonight. Okay, let's watch this. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel 
I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears the hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the air And you could have it all My empire of dirt Let's pray. Father, we just ask for your blessing on that ministry not far from here. We ask for strength and rest for Caesar, for Raquel, for the work that you have for them, the good work that you've carved out for them. We just ask for you to continue to meet their needs, and we ask that you would do that through this church. We ask that we would even give over and beyond, and that you would bless this partnership that you've knit together already, and I ask that you would just bear so much good fruit in the days ahead through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of peace that seeks to bring order from chaos. And so for these men and women and children who are benefiting from the soup kitchen, who are benefiting from the groceries, we ask that more and more order and peace and love break into their lives through the food in presence, and we just ask that you would continue to meet the needs for daily bread through that ministry. Bless us, bless them. Bless us now as we turn to your word. May we see you, Jesus, clearly. May we hear your call to turn and follow you. Amen. So tonight we're looking again at the ministry of John the Baptist. This Advent, which of course Advent is a season of preparation, it's a season of waiting. It's not time yet to meditate and focus specifically on the birth of Christ. That's the season of Christmas. Advent is that discipline, that period of four weeks of waiting and looking when God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And so each week we have a focus. Last week was hope, this week is peace. And as I mentioned earlier, we're gonna look at the life of John the Baptist because John the Baptist is great for Advent. He's an Advent voice because he prepares the way for the Lord. And so the deal is, when you look out at this world, when you look in the news, what I see is a world in great need of preparation. Two weeks ago, We see uh, the protests in Ferguson erupt into riots after the grand jury decided not to indict the police officer. And we see cars being burned and we see uh, the entire focus of America on that little town in Missouri. And then we gather together in the first week of Advent and we talk about hope. And we talk about hope 
being a light in the darkness. And so what I said last week, and I want to remind us here, is that when we talk about hope, and you say, how can we talk about hope when we look at Ferguson? How can we talk about hope when we look at so much injustice, so much racism, so much societal chaos and demonic oppression over people? And we can talk about hope and we can talk about light in the darkness without ever discounting the darkness. Because the wrong thing to do in Advent is to come together and say, hope, 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 sing joy to the world every week and everything's beautiful because then we would do what Jesus didn't and that is ignore the darkness and the plight of fallen humanity. It is the very reason Jesus came because he took darkness seriously. He took sin seriously. And he took it so seriously that he didn't just sit up there and say, ooh, I should really do something about it. He came and he moved into the neighborhood. And he didn't just move into the neighborhood, he moved into the poorest neighborhood. And he moved into the worst neighborhood to a teenage mom who was destitute, who wasn't even married to Joseph, in a stable. And then when we gather this week and we see more protests, every major city in America, even Dallas, Thursday and Friday night, downtown practically shut down. There's die-ins in Brooklyn and Boston. There's Times Square chants, people's arms up in the wake of another grand jury's failure to indict this police officer who choked this man to death. And before you think I'm trying to make political statements or before you think I'm trying to get on this, I'm telling you that you cannot as a Christian look at what's going on and say that the world is just peachy. And so tonight when we talk about peace, we must talk about peace, just like last week, without ignoring the darkness, without ignoring the fact that God's kingdom has come in the person of Jesus. It was broke open in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, but it is not here yet fully. And so in Advent, we enter into the season and we say hope and we say peace. And we do that because we look ahead to the first time that Jesus came and moved into the neighborhood. And then we look ahead to the second time he will return, his second advent. And make no mistake, it will be very, 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 very different from the first time he came as a baby. This time he will come as the reigning king of heaven and earth. And we will meet him and we will usher him into this world full of darkness, full of chaos. And we will say, finally, peace. Perfect peace. And watch, there will not even be a need for hope anymore because the thing, the person we have hoped for is right before our face. You don't need to hope for something that has arrived. You don't need to have faith in something which is the object of things unseen when he's seen and present and resident with us. God is with us here, but we don't see him. So Advent is the season where we say, I'm hoping in the face of darkness. I'm speaking peace into a world of chaos, not because these are fun ideas that go on Christmas cards. We hope because our hope has an object and it's the person of Jesus. We look and pray for peace because Jesus, the person, is our peace. So it's not some unbridled optimism. It is a person. And so we look at Advent and we look and we pray Jesus come. And so tonight when we look at P, 
peace and we look at John the Baptist's message, we need to sit and think about, well, what are we talking about when we talk about peace? Because when I say the word peace, you're probably thinking at its most basic and fundamental definition, peace is an absence of violence or peace is an absence of war, right? Peace treaties. Sign peace, people stop fighting. Peace, maybe you think of the peace sign. I think of John Lennon with a New York City shirt doing this business with his circle glasses, looking pretty cool in rock and roll. But when we just stop there and we say, well, peace is just absence of war or peace is like a hippie or peace is, you know, on our church website and our core convictions, we say that uh, in the Anabaptist core conviction number seven, peace is at the heart of the gospel. And then it goes on to talk about how because we believe peace is at the heart of the gospel, it means that just like Jesus, rather than take life, we would rather lay down our life. We would rather turn the other cheek and take Jesus at his word. And so when some people think of John Lennon or think of the peace sign or think of a peace treaty or think of our Anabaptist core conviction, they may be tempted to say, well, peace is some form of passivity, like passive, like I just sit there and I grin and bear it. Everyone would say, well, you're a pacifist or you're a passivist. But what if I told you that when we look out at the world around us and we look at Jesus who is our peace and we say we're called to actively be peacemakers. We're called to actively make peace. When we look at all these definitions in English, it doesn't get us really the whole way. And so I think when we look at our Bibles, the Hebrews have a beautiful word and a great concept throughout the pages of scriptures in Genesis and Revelation, but the Hebrew word is, you know it, Shalom. Shalom is a greeting in Jewish circles and Jewish people. And shalom, that idea of peace, I think can get us a lot further than simply a pacifism or a John Lennon peace sign. Peace in the Hebrew word shalom has a lot of connotations, but I think really the two main ones are these. Shalom, peace is wholeness. It's wholeness of body, it's wholeness of life. It's a wholeness. I went to the chiropractor this week and he told me the reason why I was turning like this, like Batman, because I cracked something in my neck. I'm talking about the original Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman that did this. The props guys couldn't give him something where his neck was free. He said, because your body is a closed circuit and some, there's some kind of imbalance. There's something that's screwed up up here. And so he says, peace, shalom. They would say shalom like in your body is when everything is in proper working order, there's this balance. And then you look at the other connotation of the word shalom, peace, and that would be harmony. That's what we can understand, the peace treaty. But throughout the Old Testament, there's even things called a covenant of peace. And it's when two parties sit down and they agree to cease from violence. But even when peace treaties happen and people agree to compromise or have a peace treaty, there can still be some animosity. Shalom takes it a step further and says, no, we remove the animosity and it's not just a wholeness, but there's also a harmony. Things are working properly and function. Because the reason people are at war, the reason we see violence, the reason we see this, because violence is when you overtake 
and you infringe on another person, right? If I punched you in the face, you have a black eye and I don't for another five seconds. There's an imbalance, there's an infringement, right? So we look at Shalom, which is actually not even gonna be in our text tonight, but John the Baptist is going to talk about peace without using the word. He's going to talk about as he prepares a people who have been in a state of imbalance, he's going to talk about the coming reign of Messiah, Jesus. And he's going to say, in order to be prepared for that kingdom, stay with me, in order to be prepared for this kingdom, when God brings his shalom, like the waters cover the sea, or his glory, when all of his shalom comes, when the world is set right and in perfect balance, Because when God comes and he judges the world, he sets things in balance. When God comes and he says in places like Isaiah 54, 10, he says, I have a covenant of peace with you. When God comes to make harmony with his creation that he is trying to rescue back. John says, in order to be prepared for that kingdom, begin now to make shalom in your relationships. So this lengthy introduction, and I'm talking about Ferguson, and I'm talking about you know, what happened in New York, and I'm talking about peace and harmony and balance. In order to be prepared for God's kingdom where shalom reigns fully, perfectly at Christ's second advent, it begins peace in our hearts on a small scale of setting things right relationally. Of setting things right relationally. Because here's the reason I talk about Ferguson in New York is because after centuries of small-scale injustice, after centuries of small-scale racism between me and you, it snowballs and snowballs and snowballs until society turns sour. And it is in that season where we look to John the Baptist and we say, No, it's time to get things back in order and prepare for the king who is coming to bring shalom and wholeness and harmony to the world. And John was sent to make straight the paths for this king. Let's look in Luke chapter three. We're gonna look at John's ministry in the context of political unrest where there was not shalom, where there was imbalance. Then we're gonna look at John's message that starts on a very small scale, okay? So lest you think that I'm just gonna get up here and do some sermon about how we need to go and change the world, we start in Dallas. We start in your family. And let me say a quick word before we even look at our text and before you look at your watch. (laughs) There are relationships in my life in which I am unable in this moment to make peace right now as we speak. And so why Advent is so crucial and why we focus on peace and restoring balance, restoring shalom and harmony, is because in those places where you can't get those relationships balanced, where you can't get your mind and your body balanced, this is where we enter into a space of saying, Jesus, who is my peace, Please let your kingdom come in this relationship. 
Please let your shalom come in my mind, in my body, in our city. And if it doesn't happen tomorrow, we must still be a people of hope waiting for second advent when Jesus comes and he will make good on his promise. So, let's look at what John says. Let's look at his context of ministry. We talked about the prophecy of his birth and the prophecy of his birth with his daddy, Zechariah, was, a, I think, a beautiful story. And we talked about the ministry that John would do, and here's the space in which he does it. Luke tells us at the beginning of chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, tetrarch is a fancy word for a ruler of a fourth He's like a prince, and he ruled a fourth of a region. He wasn't even good enough to have the whole one. He is a fourth. So we start at the top of the chain of command. We have Tiberius Caesar in the 15th year of his reign, which is about 29 AD, 29 AD. Pontius Pilate was governor. We move on down. Herod, tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip, tetrarch of Idurea and Trachonitis. And Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. No Robert Vaughn, not Abilene, where you were in Texas this week. Very different Abilene. We have all these lists of rulers. Why do we have such specific lists of rulers? Because we're alerted to the fact that John is not entering into his ministry in a vacuum. None of us are entering into our relationships in a vacuum. You don't get a clean slate tomorrow. You don't get it. You already have a world in which you live in with systemic injustices, with systemic consumerism and oppression. And you step into this world, and the world that John stepped into was a world that was dominated and ruled by every other kingdom except God's fully. Rome had been ruling at this point for about 100 years. This is the second Caesar. And then not only did you have Rome, you had these Jewish kings with their own pretend reigns. But the true Jewish king that God would sent would send is not yet here. So you have all these rulers in this context. And not only that, in verse 2, he says, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Jesus, when you flip forward and Luke tells us about Jesus' public ministry, you don't get the historical data and background of all the other guys that are ruling, even though Jesus is king. You with me? Why then for John? Here's why for John. Because John is stepping into a world that is dominated by all these rulers, number one. But number two is this. John is some kind of prophet. Mark says he's like Elijah. Guess what Luke said last week to his daddy, Zechariah? He will be great like Elijah. He will turn many people back to God. The word of the Lord came. If you remember in Jonah or any reading of your Bible, that's a prophetic formula. Guess what? The word of the Lord has come to this person and he's gonna speak on behalf of God. What is he gonna speak? Look, he doesn't even have his own message. He's gonna copy Isaiah the prophet, verse four, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. But this prophet is not just speaking We've got to look back at verse 3. So, 
The word of the Lord comes to Zechariah and he's in the wilderness. That's huge. He's in the wilderness. Why didn't you build a mega church right off the highway? Why did you go to the wilderness? Well, he went into all the country around the Jordan. And what was he doing? He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is he doing? He's telling people, get ready. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. I know your secret about your house because it's the same with my house. About 50% of the time, it's pretty ho-hum, average, tidy, right? It's pretty okay. 25% of the time, it's abject chaos, and that's laundry day. Like if you go to the back room of the house, it's like the couch is covered, and the girls are like running around in just diapers and panties, and they're just, it's just like Lord of the Flies. But then what happens the other 25% of the time? What happens the other 25% of the time is you text and say, hey, can we swing by? Hey, can we come for dinner? And we say, absolutely, yeah, we'll be ready for you. When are you coming, though? And then what happens is you go around like Tasmanian devil and you don't get it super duper clean. You don't want to put on like you live this way all the time, but you want to tidy up and at least pick up the toys so that someone doesn't break their leg. And so you go on and you get ready for the house. So this is what John's doing for Israel, a place who has had total imbalance. He is going to go out and he's going to preach a baptism of repentance And he's going to say, look, it's time to clean house. And baptism, it was especially a sting for them because baptism was something that Gentiles did to convert to Judaism. And baptism through the water reminds them of the time their ancestors walked through another set of water out of slavery and into life with God. So it seems like they're walking through the water again, getting ready into a new kind of life with God. So he's saying, repent, turn, show it through baptism, and be forgiven. Be washed, be cleansed, be ready. Here's why. This is what John's ministry and message is about. His ministry is he's baptizing, he's going out to all these different places. Here's what he's saying. A voice, Isaiah says, uh, this is Isaiah 40, of one calling in the wilderness. Where's John? Wilderness. What is John doing? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. He's sent to clean up the house. And here's the message. Here's the message. What are we getting ready for? Put your finger there and look back at chapter 1, verses 76 to 77. We read this last week, way before he was even born, or actually when he was born. This is what this child, John, was put here and set apart for God to do. Zechariah sings and he praises after he hasn't been able to speak for nine months. And he says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of what? Salvation. Did Isaiah just say, and all people will see God's what? Salvation. And what will that salvation come through? The forgiveness of their sins. What kind of baptism was John performing? 
One for the forgiveness of their sins. So John is walking in lockstep with what his daddy sang and prophesied through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now he's walking into that in the same words written centuries before for Isaiah. Isaiah in chapter 40, it's a context of you people who have been ruled over by Babylon. You people who have been put upon, who are facing the imbalance of violence and injustice, God is coming and he's coming to bring you back. And so the context of Isaiah 40 and what he's saying is this. Prepare the way I'm coming to my people. What he's not saying is this. Tell the people to get ready and when they have gotten ready, I will come to them. Okay, God is coming, period. Jesus Messiah is born. Jesus Messiah is in that region and he's waiting for his baptism. He's waiting for his time to step on the scene. So John is sent to prepare the way, okay? It's not like 635 where it's all the, the construction and all this. It's as if like when President Obama came into town and he was going to the George W. Bush Library and he spoke at Eastfield. All of the chaos of 635 from the airport or from 75, everything was made straight. Everything was put in order and he just got to, it took him like 20 minutes and it took everybody that lived around there like me like an hour just to get to Target. Everything was made straight and prepared. But God was not saying, it's going to be prepared, but I'm only coming if you get all your house in order. John is saying that's not what happen, what's happening. God is coming, whether you're ready or not. But I'm telling you, I'm giving you the option to turn from your way, to turn from these rulers, and to get ready to receive God. Remember earlier, there is a kingdom coming. There is a kingdom, Jesus says, is at hand. Repent, which was John's message. Repent. But Jesus adds this, and believe the gospel, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is not yet here when John is preparing people, but he's saying, he's going to tell them, you've got to get ready, you've got to receive it, and you've got to begin acting like the people God has called you to be. Because when God's kingdom comes, and shalom comes, and Jesus restores and restores and restores, you will have had all of this practice as God's people, and you'll be ready to receive it and receive your king. You'll know what he looks like because he's doing God's work. He's restoring balance. He's instituting God's shalom. So that's Isaiah's message, what John is saying, what John's Message ministry is, here's verse seven. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. Oh, this is a terrible idea, John. This will not get you a big old church for following, brah. You brood of vipers. In other gospels, we're told it's the Pharisees and Sadducees. Who does John say this to? The crowds. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Here's the thing, when God's judgment comes, when his shalom comes, when the way has been made straight, when all the stuff has been laid out and he returns, it is good news for the people who are ready. It's bad news for the people who aren't. Judgment is not 
so much. Get this image out of your mind. Judgment is not so much 40 lashings even for the good God people. Judgment in the Old Testament, judgment throughout scripture is always this issue of restoring balance. So when he says things, also in Luke 4, when Jesus says he will judge the poor, Isaiah says these things in Isaiah 11, he'll judge the poor, he'll judge the widow. If you think it's just about lashings and you think that judgment is always bad for everyone, you will make no sense of your Bible. What judgment is about, what God is after, when God comes is this, he's going to see everything for how it is. And he's going to see the widow and the orphan and the oppressed and the poor and the cheated and the murdered. And he's going to restore that balance and make things right. And for those who have taken life, judgment. But for those who have suffered and suffered and said, please God, please God, please God, justice, justice, justice. Shalom means restoring that balance. So John is saying, who fleed you from the coming wrath? It's good news in Isaiah's words in verses four to six, right? All people will see God's salvation. Hooray, king is here. He's not like these tetrarchs. He's not like Caesar. He's not like Herod the Great. But for these people, the crowds, verse eight, he continues and says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. What he's saying is this, don't sit back there and rest on your ethnic way. When he's speaking to the crowds, he's speaking to Israel. He's speaking to Israelites, God's people. And he's saying, don't presume that just because you were born a Jew means that when God comes, he's just going to throw his arm around you and say, well done. Why? Because he says, produce fruit with keeping with repentance. So this whole issue of preparing is this, small scale, turn, turn. When you turn and get on God's program, on God's coming kingdom, with God's coming king, fruit, fruit, fruit. And he's saying, you are like a forest This is throughout the Old Testament. Israel is often likened to a a group of trees or a vineyard. And God repeatedly says, when I visit you, don't be a dead forest. Don't be a dead vine. Because it would suck to go to Napa Valley and see every vine and vineyard shriveled up. We want good fruit. You're called out as Israel, God's people, to be a light in the face of darkness. And you've got nothing going. Jesus will say a similar thing in John 15. Abide in me and you'll produce much, what? Fruit. But every branch that doesn't is gonna get thrown around. Man, it's only used for being burned. That's the only use. Fuel, heat. Nobody's got fruit. This is what John continues to say to this tree, to this forest. He says in verse nine, the ax is already at the root of the trees. So it's ready. The time is being fulfilled. This thing is not yet swung and chopped it down, but it is right there, so you better get on the program. And then he says, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. It's the same thing, because what good is it? What good is this? You've got to be ready for God's coming kingdom. 
That's his message to the crowds. The axe is here, but it's not here yet. And then they say the very natural thing, I don't want an axe at my root. What should we do? That's what they say. Look at it in verse 10. What should we do then, John? The crowd asked. This is a perfect opportunity, John the Baptist, to pull out the Torah and to explain to them all of the 613 things they should be doing or should not be doing. This is the perfect time, pastor, to theologize and tell them about the proper view of justification and to make sure that their eschatology is all in order. What should we do? You make sure that you know the time frame of events in the end times. Learn this doctrine. You need to understand what happened on the cross and all these different views of the atonement. What does he say instead? John has got the crowds on the hook. The axe is there. What should we do, the crowd says. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. What should we do? He says, don't withhold from others. Give yourself away. There's an imbalance here. Israel, your house is really messy. Israel, you've been neglecting the poor. You've been neglecting your task as producing good fruit for the world. You're supposed to be a light and you look really, really, really dark. What should we do? It's as simple as taking the extra of what you have and giving it to those who have not. And if you've got plenty to eat, it's not rocket science. You should do the same. He says to the crowds, presumably many have been baptized, presumably many have done the right religious thing. And he says, great, but if you've repented, if you've really turned your heart, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Because the person who gives two tunics, most people didn't have four or five tunics. They didn't have the closets like we do, filled with stuff to bring to our calling like we're doing tonight. They had one or two and he says, if you have two, if you got 50%, give 50. If you got a bunch of food, guess what? Most people didn't have pantries, even if it was like Caesar and Raquel's in their backyard, to give out. Most people had daily bread. Most people got a dollar a day, and they gave away all their stuff to the wealthy landowners and farm owners, and they may have had enough to feed themselves and the family for one day. But guess what? If you have any more food, give that too. Yeah, you could save it but you need to give it because God's shalom, God's judgment is for the poor, the disregarded. And so how does Jesus minister in his first advent? There are these small scale kingdom acts. When Jesus comes, does he feed the poor? Does he identify with the poor? Does he give himself fully away? Yes, he didn't sit up here in the lofty clouds and say, this is what you ought to do, this is what you ought to do. He walked into it and he gave and he gave and he calls his followers to do the same. John's just getting them ready. John's saying, practice. This is what your Messiah King is gonna look like. This is what he's gonna look like. Luke will tell us in chapter four, he's gonna be good news to the poor. So you better start being good news to the poor. Hello, that's another one of our Anabaptist core convictions we talked about. You better be good news to the poor. We don't just want to give this stuff to our calling. 
just because to make some more room. It's because Jesus says, give. John said, give. Literally your coat, your shirt off your back. This is what God's people look like. When I'm saying we're making peace, it's these small scale, little by little, we're turning from the way of acquiring and consumerism and we're saying, no, 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 no. I think we gotta give. I think we gotta give. And he doesn't stop with the crowds. What does he keep doing? Even tax collectors, what? Even tax collectors, even came to be baptized. They were scum, filthy, cheats. Teacher, they said to John, what should we do? And he says, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. What should we do to receive king? God returning to his people. What should we do? He says, don't cheat people. Restore balance. You all know if you've been around here that tax collectors, how they made their salary is not because they just got the check on the 1st and 15th. They, they said, hey, acquire this much and whatever you can get from people, that's what you live off of. And so if you're told the sky's the limit, what are you gonna do? Dude, you're gonna try and stockpile Scrooge McDuck or Ebenezer. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. Then some soldiers asked him, these are not Roman soldiers probably, they're Jewish soldiers. God's got to get his people's house ready and cleaned up. So what should we do? There's a whole other separate group of soldiers for Herod, those tetrarchs that we mentioned earlier, and even the temple. So these soldiers came. You've got the crowds, you've got the tax collectors, and even the soldiers. What should we do? He replied, don't extort money. Don't take bribes and don't accuse people falsely. Quit cheating folks. Quit exploiting folks. Be content with your pay. Not quit your job. He didn't say quit your job. He didn't say to the tax collector, quit your job. He said, in your job, bear fruit, keeping with this repentance. Look and practice like kingdom people. So what would John say to us? What does he come and say, repent? What is it in your heart? What is it in your mind? Because we have to begin with these small scale Acts of repentance, of restoring shalom. It starts in our relationships. It starts in our hearts. Look, it starts every time you see that person of a different color. It starts with your thought right there. It starts with the person on the street corner and the sign. It starts right there. And only when God's kingdom people begin to see others through kingdom eyes and to see Jesus in these people who need our shirts who need our food, whether they're in Juarez or Dallas. We small scale with kingdom vision, restore that balance in the name of Jesus in that shalom. And we ask ourselves, if John were here today, how are we supposed to be ready? What should we do, John? What would he say to us to be ready for God's kingdom? Here's the thing about the kingdom of God. I'm closing with this. It's late. Sorry. Not sorry. Here's, here's how we're going to close. Here's a kingdom of God litmus test. When Christ comes in fullness, he inaugurated the kingdom in his ministry the first time. When he consummates the kingdom in his second advent, and as we sit here in between, the kingdom litmus test is this. 
when God's kingdom comes in fullness and there's no more hope, there's no more faith because he is there with us. Oh, that we would imagine that day, not as some weird Hollywood movie, but to see Jesus risen bodily like us. Oh, that we would see him. The kingdom litmus test is this. Will racism make it? Will the fruit of racism make it in God's new kingdom when shalom comes fully? No. Will abuse, mental, verbal, sexual, relational, will that make it through when Jesus comes and consummates the kingdom? No. Will your addiction that has been enslaving you, will it make it through the other end when Jesus' kingdom comes in fullness? No. That fruit will not last. It's gonna get burned up and shriveled just like the dry and dead branches. But what remains, what makes it through the fire, this is the New Testament language of fire. It's not Hear me, it is not when Jesus comes, he's gonna torch the earth, ball it up, and throw it away. That is garbage and a lie. Oh, well, I heard that God destroyed the earth with water and now he's gonna destroy it with fire. That's garbage and stupid. Read your Bible. The idea is that Jesus is coming, he is preparing the way, and when he comes, all the garbage of this world will be just like that dumpster fire under the bridge in downtown. It's just gonna burn up and be gone. And what's left, this is the language of Peter, the silver, the gold, the things that have been refined by fire. What's left is those acts of shalom and kingdom and love. So the things you do today are going to make it, provided it's in the name of King Jesus. When you love that unlovable person that hates you, even if it's in your mind and your prayer life, that's gonna make it. That evil thought, that, 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 that won't make it. That lustful thought, that binging on pornography, that, that just filling yourself, loading yourself with junk, that's gonna be burned up. The kingdom litmus test is what's gonna make it out the other side when Jesus comes. And that's a world I wanna be a part of. That's a world that I wanna hope for. That's a world when today the pastors were at a funeral. The world I wanna be a part of is where we get to see that guy again. The world I wanna be a part of is when he restores these relationships that are so twisted and knotted up on this side. I wanna see good fruit and existing in abundant life, but you can get in on it right now. You can get in on it right now. It's not rocket science, it's give, because Jesus gave. It's abide with me. You're in Christ right now. You're in Christ right now. The risen Christ, he's with us, God with us, he's for us. You can get on it right now. Wake up, wake up. Don't get lost in Walmart because you're buying stuff for Christmas. Wake up for stuff that lasts. Wake up for the stuff that lasts and bring shalom, be peace in the name of Jesus. Father, we ask that you would not just call us to it, that you would equip us for it. As we come to the table tonight, Lord, we repent and we turn from those things which won't make it in the new age. We ask for your creation, your kingdom to energize us, 
We ask for your new creation and your kingdom to inspire us to go and be good news beginning in our closest relationships and spilling out into this world that you love and care for. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, Abba Father, may it be. Amen.